All right. Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. Are you guys ready for a building update? Yeah, I hope so. Guys, let me just remind you, I'm going to show you pictures in a minute. We're going to celebrate. We're going to be excited. Let me just remind you this, that the building is not an end. It's not a, the end goal. I need to tell myself this. Uh, the building is a means to a greater end. Let me say it again. It's a means to a greater end, deeper discipleship, and wider mission. We're calling it our future home and hub for a reason. It's a home because the church is a family. It's a hub because the church is also missionaries. It's going to be a place of worship, and it's going to be a place of witness. Now, let me just show you if you've not been coming around that long and maybe you don't know our story. Let me show you the property that God gave us. Uh, let me show you a picture of about six months ago. Here's what it looked like. 13 acres right outside of downtown. Very, very excited about it. And for the last six months, we've just been doing the groundwork and the foundational work on the property. And, and if you don't know this, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, the Christian life and, and putting down a foundation. And often it's the groundwork and the foundational work uh, in your life and also in really when you're building something, that takes the longest. And sometimes you feel like, man, I'm doing the work and I'm repentant of the sin and, and I'm doing everything that I can and I don't even know that anyone sees it. But after you do the groundwork and after you do the foundational work, you can all of a sudden begin to build. Let me show you what our building looks like right now if you've not seen it. Isn't that incredible? Yes. Guys, in the back there, that's gonna be our worship center and lobby. And in the front there, that's gonna be our kids space and offices underneath. And so we're excited, let me show you another picture. That's a bigger picture inside of the worship center. Let me show you another picture. That's a bigger picture of the kids' area. And then one more picture. Look at that. Isn't that incredible? Right next? Yes, yes. Okay, so, guys, the walls have been delivered, and they're being put up. The steel's been delivered. It's being put up. And here's what I want to tell you. The building of walls, okay, you see that. And why do we get so excited? It's actually a very biblical idea. There's a whole book of the Bible about building a wall. It's called the book of Nehemiah. And let me just encourage you, as you drive by the building, and I hope you'll drive by the building, and I hope when you drive by the building, you'll pray for the building. But if you're the one driving, I hope you'll keep your eyes open, okay? We don't, we don't need any accidents near the building, okay? Pray for the building. But when you see the building, here's what I want you to ask. Uh, what do I need to build before we get in the building? In life, you're always building, you're always defending, or you're always rebuilding. That's it. Those are the three options. When you're young, and many of you are young, you need to build. I need to build a life, I need to build a marriage, I need to build a family, I need to build a business. What happens is once you build, then you need to defend. I need to defend it against decay, against the enemy, against neglecting it. And then sometimes if you don't build, or if you don't defend what you build, you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy, unfortunately, rebuilding what you already built. We wanna help you build, defend, and rebuild here, and we primarily do that through prayer together. And I wanna invite you, March 20th, we're gonna have a night of prayer and worship. We're doing three of those this year. This is our first of it. Uh, it's gonna be a time where we seek God's face together and we ask for God's blessing on our lives, on our family, on our church, and on our city. So let's pray together and then we're gonna dive into Joshua chapter seven, let's pray. Um, Lord, we just come to you right now in Jesus' name. We are so thankful for so many of your gifts that you've given us. Uh, of course, first and foremost, the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for just other blessings. We thank you for 13 acres right next to downtown in 2023. And we're thankful for the progress of this building and the hope and plan and prayer and goal that will still be in this building uh, as a place of worship and witness at the end of this year. Lord, I pray right now, anybody who says this, as I see that building go up, there's some things I need to build in my life over the next eight months, 10 months of my life. I need to build my marriage. I need to build my family. I need to build spiritual disciplines. Lord, would you help us to defend with the word of God, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit? Would you help us to defend the things that we're building? 
Lord, if there's anyone in here who feels like my life fell apart, the wall broke down, would you put people to come alongside and help them rebuild it? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This was the sermon in the book of Joshua I didn't want to preach. Why couldn't I be gone this week? <laughs> I was gone last week, and Spencer gets the victory at Jericho, and I'm back, and I get sin in the camp. <laughs> this is a sermon today that asks the question, what are you hiding? And where are you hiding it? And how long have you been hiding it? And what are the effects of hiding it? And how is your life affecting everybody else around you, either for good or bad? I mean, this is not a fun sermon to preach. I don't know a lot about a lot of things. I know a little bit about preaching. And what I know about preaching is there's three types of sermons. There are inspiring sermons. I love those. Those are like, the let's be courageous and let's take risks and let's climb that hill and let's take that mountain. And what if we reach these people? And what if God did this? And what if we saw that? And those are fun to preach. Those are inspiring sermons. And then there's intriguing or interesting sermons, and I love preaching those. That's probably mostly what I try to preach. It's like, well, hey, look, have you ever seen this before? This is really cool in the Bible. And here's something familiar, but let me try to make it fresh. And here's an interesting doctrine that maybe you didn't know about. Or here's, a, here's an application for your life from Scripture that maybe you never thought of, and this will help your marriage. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. So there are interesting sermons, and there are inspiring sermons, and then there are just terrifying texts that God gives us, terrifying. I mean, today, Joshua experiences defeat. He experiences failure, he experiences loss. We don't really do well with defeat and failure and loss, and we don't even know sometimes why. As soon as loss happens, we try to figure out why did it happen, and here's what we're gonna learn today. I'm not telling you these are the only reasons loss happens. I'm telling you from the book of Joshua, these are the two main reasons Joshua experienced loss. Here's what they are. Spiritual pride and secret sin. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next 40 minutes or so. See, Joshua has to learn a principle. And this is, there's a few main principles in the book of Joshua. And here's, here's one of the main principles. Obedience leads to life, to victory, to winning, to success. And defeat, or and disobedience leads to death and loss and failure and shame. And that many times the reason we have a defeat, it did not come from without. It came from within. So I'm going to look today, we're going to look at a very hard text. And from that hard text, I'm going to try to show you four helpful but surprising truths from a hard text. Turn with me to Joshua 7, verse 1. But, underline that word if you underline your Bible. But the people of Israel broke faith. Did you know that you can break faith? Your faith can be broken. You can break your faith. You can't lose your faith, but you can break your faith. Some of you have broken your faith. Israel broke their faith. Look here. So the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. First of all, do you notice what the first word in this text is? But. Now here's what you need to know. There are some big buts in the Bible. Pun intended. Okay. You're like, can we laugh about that? You can. Um, there are positive buts and there are negative buts. A positive but is all the verses you love. We were dead in our sins, but God, we love those. Those are the verses you memorize, you hold on to, you think about, you trust in. I had a buddy and he said that Romans 6.23, when he used to share it, he said, let me show you 
the biggest but in the Bible. <laughs> he said, here's what it is. It's Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We love that. We don't like the negative buts. The negative buts are God was doing this, God was blessing that, but you. Do you see what it started here? So the last, last verse, if you go back to chapter 6, is the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread everywhere. This chapter starts with a negative but. It says the people of Israel broke faith. You know how many people there were? Rough estimates tell us 3 million people. Did 3 million people have a bad day? All at the same time? It says they broke faith. Do you see how they broke faith? According to the devoted things. Now, what were the devoted things? So this was interesting. In Joshua chapter 6, God says, after the battle at Jericho, I want you to bring all the treasure into my storehouse, all of it, 100%. Now, we'll see in future battles, he says, you can keep some. Bring this much. Keep some. In the first one, he says, bring me all the gold, bring me all the silver, bring me all the iron, bring me all the bronze. And it says they didn't do something with the devoted things. They didn't bring it to God. Here's what God's trying to communicate. This is such an important principle to understand. God doesn't do second. Some of you don't understand that still. God doesn't do second. There's like things about God he just doesn't do. You read it, okay, God doesn't change. You're like, oh, thank God, he's the same. Yeah, good, God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. Like, oh, this is great news, God doesn't lie. Here's another one. God doesn't do second. He doesn't do second in your marriage. He doesn't do second in your finances. He doesn't do second at work. He doesn't do second in parenting. Doesn't do it. Can't do it. Impossible. Won't be done. God says, give me the first. The principle of the tithe is not just 10%. It's the first 10. It's give and trust. They didn't learn this lesson. Some of you haven't learned this lesson. Well, I'll show you what happens next. So here's what happens. Okay, so we're just still in first part of verse one, but look at this. For Achan, okay, we're gonna call him mistaken Achan, Okay. He'll soon be quaking aching. By the very end, he'll be aching fried like bacon. We'll see this, okay? <laughs> Some of you know this story. Okay. For Achan, the son, look at this. This is important. The son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Now listen, do you know this is the longest introduction of any person in the entire Pentateuch? Why? Why are you telling me his dad, his granddad, his great-granddad, and his tribe? Like, usually if someone's super important, here's what you get told. Joe, the son of Bob. If they're really, really important, you get told, Joe, the son of Bob, the son of Tim. Why are we getting three generations? Well, let me show you this. For Achan, the son of Carmi, I read all those, look at it, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against Achan. It doesn't say that, does it? against the people of Israel. Israel breaks faith because one person hides something in their tent. We'll get there. Steals something, decides I'm not gonna give. And God is angry at everyone. Here's the first hard truth or surprising truth from a hard text. Everything you do affects everyone you know. Why do we get his dad, his granddad, his great-granddad, and his tribe? We're getting his social community and context. We're going to see at the very end his family is going to get in trouble as well along with him. Everything you do affects everyone you know. I know you don't like that, right? Who likes that? 
No one likes that because you'd like to think, what does it matter what two consenting adults do when they're by themselves? What does it matter if I do something? Doesn't it only hurt and harm me? You are an individual, but you are not an island. Here's what this means. Let me give you the bad news, and then I'll give you the good news. Here's the bad news. Whenever you sin and whenever you do something wrong, it is way worse than you think. And it affects way more people than you want to know. The good news is, when you do something good, it is way better than you think. It affects way more people than you know. Do you know that the average person will have a thousand, this is the average person, will have a thousand significant relationships in their life. I'm not saying a thousand best friends. A significant relationship is a relationship in which you will have influence over the person. The average person, the average American right now, they did a study, has 320 stored contacts in their phone. So think about that. I mean, that's somebody you know fairly. Like, I don't, if someone says, are you friends with so-and-so? My answer is no, unless I have their cell phone number. Because if you have cell phone number, you have access, immediate, instant, constant access to. So we know the average American right now has 320 people in their life they know well enough to have in their phone. Everything you do affects everyone you know. We know this, right? What happens when you're, <laughs> this could happen about people you don't even know. You ever been driving, you're on I-95, you're on I-40, and somebody makes a foolish mistake, they're not paying attention, or maybe they were drinking and driving, and they get in an accident. You don't even know this person, and you're stuck in traffic for four hours, and not just you, thousands of people. It's like, how can someone I not even know do something and affect me? I don't know what happened with the Southwest flights. I don't know, maybe I haven't followed it. I don't know what, you know, when it, they were grounded. It's like, but I wouldn't be surprised if we found out it was like three people's fault. You know, and something with technology. It's like, wow, can three people mess something up for tens of thousands of travelers? I mean, you think about how many dinners got rescheduled and business meetings got reordered and plans got rearranged. You are an individual, but you're not an island. You're a citizen of America. You're an employee of a company that also might be connected to the stock market. You're a player on a team. You're a student in a college. You're a member of a church. You're a part of a family. I mean, you may wish you were some island and you could do whatever you wanted and it affected no one else, but that's not the truth. See, here's, here's the hard truth that we get in this text. You're not gonna like this. Um, sin is social. See, what happens is when I sin, it shapes me, not for good. And when you sin, it shapes you, and then you go out and interact with the rest of the world, and we have to deal with the sin-shaped you. I'll give you some examples. So here's a classic example. People think, man, pornography, you know, what does it matter? I delete my browser history right afterwards. I only look at, quote, unquote, free porn. There's no such thing as free porn. What you're doing when you look at pornography, among many other things, is you're propelling an entire demonic industry right. that is violent toward women and dehumanizes them along with men. 
And so when you look at pornography, you're not just looking at pornography, you're propelling an entire industry. And then your, your mind gets shaped. We, we know the actual science on this, that porn changes your mind. So I've met men who can't be intimate with their wives because of the amount of pornography they've, met, they've watched. I've met single men who are afraid to talk to a real woman. They know how to interact with pixels, not a person. A real woman can say no. They don't know what to do with that. They've never seen that their whole life. Alcohol abuse and many other addictions, you know what happens with an alcoholic is almost always an alcoholic becomes a liar. The, the part of the brain that is inflamed on uh, lying is inflamed in every alcoholic's brain because what you have to do to become an alcoholic is lie to yourself and lie to every person around you eventually. And what you do as an addict is you begin to isolate yourself more and more. So you'll look at your schedule and your addictions will dictate your schedule, which will pull you away from your family and will pull you away from other relationships. And what, what does sin do? Among many other things, it separates things. So you will lose your relationships with your addiction. It affects everything. Here's a real serious example, as if those weren't serious, is suicide. I don't know what to do with suicide. It's, it's, we're having a more and more you know, generation of people that are suicidal. Um, if, you, if that's you, we want to walk with you and be pastorally sensitive to this. Um, suicide, I don't know how else to say this, is unbelievably selfish. Unbelievably selfish. People are in pain. People are feel weakness. It's not the unforgivable sin. But what you'll see, and I've met many families like this over the years, is somebody in their family will have committed suicide all by themselves in a moment of weakness. And the family has to live with it for decades. It's not something you get over. It's something that by the grace of God you get through. And it is unbelievably hard on people. And they get angry and they grieve. And it can affect families. There's the grace of God, but it can affect families for generations. If you call two cities home, everything you do affects us. When you write your goofy, long Facebook post, I'm not thinking about any one person. I'm not. I'm not. Um, it affects us, guys. Uh, we are doing great financially, uh, really great. We're ahead of budget. We've been ahead of budget every year. We're strong. New people are joining. Many people in our church are generous. But I want you to understand this. Your lack of generosity and there is a group of you. Your lack of generosity is deeply affecting our church. Amen. We can't do everything we would like to do and God would have us to do because you're not generous. Guys, we have a $5 million budget. We should have, if every, at the size of our church, if everyone here was tithing, our budget should be $10 million. Amen. There is $5 million of gospel ministry and mission we can't do because of some of you. Everything you do affects everyone you know. Okay, guys, we're going to have to move faster. We're halfway through verse 1. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's continue on. Here's what it says. Verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to AI. Now, that does not stand for artificial intelligence, okay? Some of you go, this is a prophecy where the church is going to fight artificial... No, okay, we'll see. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> 
Uh, Joshua sent men uh, from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out uh, Ai. Now, Ai was a much smaller city than Jericho. Here's the second surprising truth from a hard text. The greatest hindrance to future success is past success. Here's the principle. We don't do very good with blessing. I mean, do you do well with blessing? It's like you, you get blessed and you just keep giving. In fact, you give more because you've been more blessed. And you, you're blessed and you, you feel just as dependent on the Lord today with all your blessings as you did when you didn't have them. It's like, guys, as the human condition because of sin is we don't do good with victory. We don't do well with winning. We don't do good with blessing. See, Joshua, it says he sent out the spies. Now, you have to understand the text carefully and, and look at how he did things in the past because he does the same things. This is how spiritual pride works. This is Joshua has spiritual pride, which comes from being successful. When you have spiritual pride, you don't often notice it. Joshua's not going to notice it for a few verses until he's flat on his face before God. But here's what happens. You start doing the same external things, but you forget the internal spiritual things. So Joshua still sends out the spies. He doesn't, this is the only time he doesn't seek the Lord before he goes out. But you know what? He always sought the Lord privately. So no one knew. You can learn to do the external things and get pretty good at them and the internal things go away. I'll show you this here. He says this, and they returned to Joshua and they said, do, do you not have all the people go up there? But let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there for they are few. In other words, uh, Joshua, uh, I looked at it. It's little people. Let's send the JV team. Here's a principle. Um, fear makes your enemies look bigger. We know that. I've preached that sermon. That's the beginning of the book. That's the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, that's the book of Numbers. When we, f when we have fear, the enemies in our lives look bigger than they really are. Here's the se second part of that. When you're prideful, your enemies begin to look smaller than they really are. Guys, lust is a big enemy. It's no joke. Anxiety is a big enemy. Satan is an intelligent, evil being. The value system of the world is nothing to play around with. We need our enemies to be right-sized. Joshua, in pride, along with his men, because of their past success, which is the greatest hindrance to their future success, decided this is not a big battle that we need to send a lot of people in. Well, look what happens. So about 3,000 men, verse 4, went up from there, uh, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So here we go, they fail again, or they fail for the first time. But here they go, they fear again. See, here's what happens. Here's maybe another way to say it. We become vulnerable after the victories in our life. Because here's what basically happens. And it, it, it doesn't usually happen if you're just successful one time. By the way, Joshua's been successful multiple times now. Moses liked him. They cross over the river. People listen to him. He wins a battle. He, he's becoming famous. But what happens is when, you, when you're successful across time, you begin to think you're maybe special. You know, and it's one option on many options. It might also be God's blessing you. <laughs> but you begin to think you're special. You begin to think you're unique. You begin to think 
I mean, you, we don't articulate these things. It's my job to help us articulate these things. We begin, we begin to think, maybe I'm the exception to the rule in this area of our life. And here's really what happens, is you trust more in your competency than in your character or your communion with Christ. So let me just give you an example from my life, from preaching. So I've been preaching now for 17 years. And uh, so, you know, getting close to half my life. Uh, and the first time I ever preached, I was 21 years old. And I was in college, and my college pastor came up to me and said, you're preaching in a couple weeks. I said, okay. He said, yeah, I want you to preach at our weekly event. I thought, oh, I'm not ready for this. There was only like 40 people at the event. He said, I want you to you know, preach at this event. Well, man, I went home, and I think I confessed every sin I ever did. I think I called every person I ever sinned against and said, would you forgive me? <laughs> I was so prayed up. I was so dependent on the Lord. I was so, man, I got to be godly. I better not be sinning this week. And, and I preached it. And I don't even remember quite how it went. But here's what I've learned over the years is, is I know how to put a sermon together. I know, I know it needs an introduction. I know it needs clear language. I know you need illustrations. I know you need to talk about people's marriages. I, need, I know I need to talk about your finances. I know there needs to be an emotional flow. I, need to, I know I need to talk about what the culture says. I know we need a moment at the end to respond. And the longer I do this, the more I know how to do this. You know, and sometimes I'm standing back there in that corner, and I'm thinking to myself, how much have I prayed today? Because I'm about to pray to start the message. Is this the first time I'm praying today? It's easy to trust in your competence or your capacity instead of your character in your communion with Christ. Second surprising truth, future or uh, past success is often the greatest hindrance to future success. We become vulnerable after the victory. Let me show you the third truth. This one's gonna surprise some of you. Sometimes you need to stop praying. You're, you're not even gonna believe this text if you've never seen it before, look at this. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So we're going to look at Joshua and his prayer life. And like all of us, it's a mixed bag. There's some good things he does. There's some bad things he does. So let's talk about the good things he does. First of all, uh, he processes defeat, processes failure, processes law, processes loss. Did you see it? With people and by prayer. So prayer is he's going to go to God in prayer. And people is he brings the elders together. I think this is a really good principle that when something's not going well in your life, you need to pray about it, dot, 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 with other people. I just think there's something powerful when a husband and wife say, you know what, I know you've been praying for our, for our daughter who's having a hard time in high school, and I've been praying for our daughter who's having a hard time in high school. I think we need to pray for her together. Something might happen. We might get some insight. We need to pray for, we've been doing it. I know you've been, our marriage is a mess. And I know you've been praying to God and telling God how I need to change. And I want to be, tell you I've been committed to praying to God and telling God how you need to change. But I thought, maybe we could pray about our marriage together. Most Christians, when they pray, only pray by themselves. Joshua gathers them. He also has the right posture. Sometimes your soul, like Joshua's is, is overwhelmed and it affects your body. He just fell. Sometimes you need to do something with your body so your soul will feel it. If I, I wouldn't do this. If I said right now, everyone, please get on your knees. We're going to pray. 
you could you would be able to feel the temperature change in the room. Sometimes you do something with your body for your soul. I've read the whole Bible. There's no verse in the Bible that says during worship, please stand there with your arms crossed and, and look bored. But that's what many of you do. Posture is important. So let's go on. Look what he says. He says this. And Joshua, here's the prayer. And Joshua said, alas. You know what alas means? We don't use that word anymore. Modern translation, bummer. <laughs> that's what it means. Like, it's like this stinks. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew term of disgust. He says, alas. Oh, Lord God. Now, I'm going to show you something. So what, what Joshua does well is he complains to God. We are to complain to God, but not complain about God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Kyle, that's not true because there's a verse in the Bible that says do everything without complaining. Yes, that's talking about not complaining horizontally. Amen. It's not saying we can't complain vertically. How do I know that? Almost every single psalm is a complaint to God. Amen. This is very important to understand because some of you complain. It's like you don't even know. You are just so negative. And you complain about this, and you complain about that, and you're very hard to be around. It's very hard to be around somebody who complains. Um, also, the other thing about complaining is when you complain, if I'm your friend and you're complaining, I'm like, you're right, you know, you're right, you're, <laughs> your boss is terrible, right? My tendency is just want to come alongside you. Or you're right, your husband is a goofball. But when you complain to God, he sees the whole situation. So just, just get it out, come on. I know what's really, right? When they say, in marriage, they, they say there's three sides of the story, right? What she said, what he said, what really happened. God always sees what really happened. So he's like, give it to me. Okay, cry about it again. Have the heart funeral. Yell for a second. Got it, got it. Good, okay. You don't have to do that horizontally now. You can do that vertically. I can handle it. We can complain to God. We should. Get it off our chest. Help us, help us process it. We should not. Now, here's the danger, and Joshua steps into this. He moves from complaining to God, two millimeter shift, to complaining about God. I'll show, this is what he shouldn't do. Here he says, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? So he's doing the oldest trick in the book. This is when trouble comes, I blame God instead of taking responsibility. This is as, literally, technically, this is as old as Adam. Remember when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronts them and Adam says, the woman, but if you read it very carefully, he doesn't blame Eve. The woman you gave me. It's really blaming God. Well, he blames God, and then look what happens. Verse 7 continued, would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Now, this is why I believe the Bible. Because it's so honest, even about its heroes. Here is great Joshua. Be strong and courageous, Joshua warrior, soldier, man of God, victory, you know, Joshua, victorious Joshua. And he is saying, right, there's nothing new under the sun. He's saying the exact same thing Israel said. Here's what he's saying. I want to go back. Israel said, I want to go back to Egypt. Joshua, I can't believe it. It's right there. He says, I want to go back to the other side of the Jordan. I want to go back into the wilderness it's like, man, you just won a battle before this and you saw the miracles and God's faithful and you heard the word of God. And What does it take for you to want to give up and go back? 
sometimes you're, you know, you're like, I'm going to step out, I'm going to be a public Christian, and someone says something about it. It's like one comment, and you're like, okay, I'm done being a public Christian. I'm giving up and going back, right? Some of you, you get married, and it's like a couple hard conversations, a couple fights with your spouse, and you're already thinking the D word. Or you're having that fantasy life about how much life better was life when you were single. Parents can do this with their kids. We live in the generation where everybody wants to give up and go back as soon as they can. I don't like my job, I'll transfer. I don't like my school, I'll transfer. Things are hard in my city, I'll move. The test in quality and character in a man or woman is what they can put up with by the grace of God without giving up and going back. He does do one good thing. I'll show you this in verse 8. He does one good thing in his prayer. He says this, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from all the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So what he does well is he appeals to God's glory and God's great name. I told you a couple weeks ago, God loves God. And here's what he's saying, God. I need you to act not for me ultimately. I want you to act because if you don't act, you're going to look small. Charles Spurgeon used to say, when you talk to God, you talk to him like a lawyer. You make your case before him. You walk and you say, God, for how much longer are you going to look small on the college campus? How much longer are you going to want to seem irrelevant in our culture? How much longer are you going to let your people be treated like this? God, for your great name, do something. Or as one of my friends likes to say, God, we have a problem. (laughs) He said, because we're in Christ, if you're a Christian, because you're connected to Christ and we're in covenant, and I've taught on that before, it's a deep connected relationship. If I have a problem, God has a problem. Every family knows this. Mom has a problem, dad has a problem. My buddy, he, he will, uh, he'll spread out prayer cards. He's much more spiritual than me. He will spread out prayer cards all over his desk, and he'll walk in a circle around his desk over those prayer cards, and he'll just say for each one of them, God, we have a problem. God, we have a problem. We can't get pregnant. We have a problem. God, we have a problem. We have a prodigal. We have a problem. I need you to come through and work in this. What's amazing, because it's when he says, basically, God, we have a problem, and appeals to God's great name that God responds. But maybe not the response we were thinking. Look what he says. You wouldn't believe this if it wasn't in the Bible. The Lord said to Joshua, and remember, Joshua is... Joshua is on his knees, and Joshua is face down before God. And God says to Joshua, get up. I I can't believe it's in the Bible. He's saying, he says, look what he says next. Why have you fallen on your face? In other words, why are you praying about this? There are certain things, Joshua, you don't need to pray about. Some of you go, that doesn't sound biblical. Yes, We're always to pray. We're to pray without ceasing. But there are certain things you don't need to pray about. Do you need to pray about breaking up with your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend? 
No, you don't need to, you don't need to pray about that. Do you need to pray about repenting of sin? No, you don't need to pray about that. You, need, you might need to pray, Lord, how would I do it? Who would I tell? How would I, you know? Do you need to pray about taking care of widows and orphans? Uh, nope, we got a verse. I don't need to pray about that. Do you need to pray about uh, giving to the kingdom of God? No, I might want to pray about how much, but I don't need to pray about that. So then why would people pray? We well, have to understand, you have to have a sophisticated understanding of humanity and a sophisticated understanding of sin and spiritual pride. Sometimes we pray to watch ourselves pray. So you get in your room and you close your door and no one's home or you go in your prayer closet or you're in your study, wherever you are, and you pray about your marriage. And you pray for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes and that's a lot for you and so you feel really good and then you walk out and you pray to watch yourself pray. And then you walked out and you go, man, that was amazing. I, I bet my husband doesn't pray for our marriage. I bet my wife doesn't pray for our marriage. Yeah, here's the problem, guy or gal. You haven't done anything in Ephesians 5 about your marriage at all. You've been praying to delay and distract yourself. You've been praying as an escape and as an excuse. And you already know what you need to do in this area of your life, and you've not done it. So here's what God says to him. He says, Israel's sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. This is verse 11. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So I want us to understand this. God says, I'm going to tell you the reason things aren't going well in your life, Joshua. Because Joshua's going, why did I lose the battle and why did 36 people die? God's going to say, it's not what you think. It's not strategy. Sometimes we have a problem and the, and the answer is simple and it's straightforward and you need some more education and you need to meet with somebody and you need to go to counseling and you, you need to buy something, whatever. You need new technology, whatever. But I don't know how many of us don't have the category in our mind is maybe things aren't going well for me and there's a spiritual moral reason. Amen. Like we live in a society today where everybody thinks the solution is a pill. We're not against pills. We believe. Pray and take a pill. There you go. <laughs> We're not against pills. Hear me say that. What we are against is the idea. So for example, at the Super Bowl, 75% of the ads were for pills. I mean, I want us to think about that for a second. There's a pill for that. It's like, well, maybe not. We tend to think, if something's wrong, here's what I need to do. Oh, I've got to get my kid in a different school. Maybe not. Maybe you need to, when they're in school, go up into their room and pray over their whole room. Pray over their clothes. Kneel next to their bed and say, God, would you haunt them in their dreams and bring them to Christ? You know, maybe sometimes it's not, I need, uh, I need, we need to take a pill. Maybe it's, you know what, we need to fast about this for like a month. We need to go into a serious time of prayer and fasting for our marriage because we've worn out a couple counselors and the books don't work. And I think maybe there's something deeply spiritual going on here. I had a friend and he has a guy that he knows, a dad, and his daughter's, you know, in her 20s and completely ideological and agenda-driven and atheistic and hates her dad and 
hates the church, even though she grew up in a great church. And, and the dad's trying to figure this out, and my friend who's a pastor is trying to help him, and the, da- and the dad goes, I just, you know what I think it is? I think it was sixth grade she didn't have any friends. He said, no, maybe that wasn't it. She had a teacher in 11th grade. Maybe it was the teacher in 11th grade. My friend who's a pastor said to the guy, man, why, why do you have no category for the spiritual? Why are you trying to explain this simply psychologically and developmentally? And you don't even have a category for this might be a demonic oppression and the spiritual warfare on your daughter. Jesus said there are some things that only come out by prayer. So he gives them the reason. And I just want to encourage you, sometimes the reason isn't what you think. And you may have to pray and get into the unseen realm. Get some time with God. Get some time together and say, God, what is going on in our kid's life? What is going on in our marriage? Here's what God says to him. Look verse 13. Get up. I'm thinking to myself, is Joshua still on his face? (laughs) If God told me to get up, I'm getting up immediately. He needed to hear it twice. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Uh, For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, uh, here's what God does. When there's a problem, God chooses the person who is the spiritual leader in that environment to handle the problem. In the home, this is dad. In other words, he says, all right, so, so, you know, as I've heard it said before, if Jesus Christ came knocking at anyone's house and a kid answers, he's asking for dad, not mom. There is a unique responsibility that fathers bear. And though everything in the house may not be your fault, it becomes your responsibility to deal with. There's a very, there's a very simple reason for this. Groups can't lead. I don't know if you know that. Groups don't lead. Groups govern. Groups vote. Individuals lead. Even if you see a group leading, it's like there's an individual in that group who's leading. An individual must be called out, given responsibility, and held accountable. This is what happens with Joshua. I told my kids, I said, we were talking about something else one time. I said, guys, I feel so responsible. If anything would happen at two cities, I would feel ultimately responsible. I said, if anything happened to any of our staff or our elders, I would feel ultimately responsible. And then my daughter, who's thoughtful, she said, except if it's the building, then it's Pastor Dave's fault, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, and I said, no. But there's a, there's a responsibility. So Joshua says, I have to take responsibility for this, though I'm not from that tribe or that family or know Aiken personally. I'm gonna have to take responsibility. Here's what he does, verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clan, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So um, he says this, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Here's the principle we learn here. A church that does not confront sin condones it. This is teaching us that sin must be dealt with. This is, this is an early teaching on what we now call church discipline. Church discipline is just we deal with sin 
for the good of that individual sinner who's living in rebellion and as a warning to everybody else watching that this is where sin leads. Amen. In fact, it's the only way that, you know, when we, every once in a while someone, well, it actually just happened after service. Someone's asking about, hey, what church? And I'm, I'm moving or I'm going to college or I got a new job and I'm looking for a church. It's like, you know, I only look for two things in a church. It's like, I don't care how the pastor dresses. I don't care what type of music they have. I don't care what building they meet in. I don't care how large or small they are. I care about two things. Do they preach the Bible? And do they practice church discipline? It's the only way to say we are dead serious. I would not send somebody, I would not want my daughter growing up in a church that did not preach the word and did not practice uh, uh, church discipline. Now, don't get get afraid. Church discipline is not this, you know, we call you out and yell at you in front of everyone. Most church discipline is we take sin seriously. And 99% of church discipline happens in our church weekly, and it's just one individual talking to another individual about a sin in their life with grace and truth, with the desire for that person's best in mind. Every once in a while, it gets to a place where it needs to grow beyond that. But most church discipline takes place at that level. Which leads to the final surprising truth, which is this. There is no such thing as secret sin. I mean, you know, you may have secret sin that your wife doesn't know about, your husband doesn't know about, your kids don't know about, your friends don't know about, your brother doesn't know about, your mom doesn't know about. But in regards to the mind and heart of God, there's no such thing as secret sin. Well, I'll show you this. Here's what it says. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. So he calls everyone and goes, guys, 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 we got to deal with some secret sin. Imagine if I did this this morning. Hey, guys, we got to deal with some secret sin. There's one person in here who's been sinning. I mean, really grievously, it's secret sin. It's going to be exposed today. And I went, it's from this side of the room. <laughs> Everyone over there was like, oh, thank God. Right? <laughs> but this is what they basically did. They said, all right, in, in what the high priest, he had two stones, a black stone, a white stone. They would use these, a tradition tells us, and they would throw them down. And the white stone meant yes, and the black stone meant no. And so it's like, okay, the tribe of Judah. What I'm, what I'm wondering is if at this point, if Achan has any thought of, oh my goodness, I'm about to be found out. I don't think so. I think he thinks, well, one in 12 chance. There's still lots of clans and there's lots of families and I'm not going to get found out. Look what happens here. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clans of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmu. The son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Interesting. He says, I want you to glorify God by confessing your sins. A lot of people have a very romanticized, very warm and fuzzy view of what it looks like to glorify God. Sometimes glorifying God is confessing your sins. Because when you you confess your sin, confessing sin is the same thing as agreeing with God. And when you confess your sin, you just say two things. I was wrong and you were right. And that's good for you to know and that glorifies God. And it warns other people if you do it publicly. God, I was wrong about sexuality stuff. I I thought I could be part of the hookup, shack up, breakup culture. I was wrong and you were right. Now, here's what else we need to learn about confession that no one wants to admit. Your confession needs to be as large and loud as your transgression. 
So if you go on Facebook and you write some terrible things about some person, and then you go to them personally and apologize, that is not enough. You go back on Facebook and you say, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Please share this post. I regret what I have said. I was wrong. This means that when some husband disrespects his wife or some wife disrespects the husband in front of the kids, does something, you call the kids back in the room when you calm down and you say, I'm so sorry the way I talked to your mom. You don't just apologize in the bedroom to her. You apologize in front of the kids and say you're sorry to everybody for the way that you treated him or her. This is what's called communal discipline in every family that practice, that's biblical practices it. It's, this is what happens. It means that, I don't know, say you find out that Junior's been sinning. He's been lying to you. you, you if the kids are age appropriate, you pull everyone around the dinner table and you say, hey guys, your mom and I found out that Junior's been lying to us for three months. And here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen to Junior. And this is what happens to people who lie to their parents. And this is what will happen to you if you do the same thing. Have you ever wondered, why are younger siblings always better behaved than the older ones? It's because they saw mom and dad deal with the foolish and sinful decisions of the older child. And they said, I do not want to go that same way. We'll see what happens here as it closes. Here's what happens. And Achan answered... Joshua, truly I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Look, this is going to be the same language that Eve did. Look what it says here. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted and I took. Do you see that? I saw, I coveted, I took. What happens is the problem with Achan is he looked at the spoils a second time. I was taught as a young man when it comes to lust, when it comes to being attracted to, uh, to beautiful women or something like that, I said, I was told, and this has been told to a large group of young men, you'll never be able to avoid the glance, but you don't have to do the gaze. The problem with Aiken was not the glance. The problem with Aiken was the gaze. He saw, he took, he coveted. Then look what he says here. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I'm hiding something, and I'm hiding something under the things I'm hiding. That's a whole other sermon. You ever wonder, what was he even going to do with that cloak? As soon as he wore it, someone was like, where'd you get that? <laughs> He's going to be in trouble. Here's what we're learning. We all have secrets. Now, the purpose of this message, please hear me, is not for everyone to go home and try to figure out the deep and dark secrets of their spouse. No one can live under, tell me your darkest secret, please, now. No one can live under, we're going into dinner and talking about all the things that you've never told me. No one can live under that. What we are saying is that people do have secrets, and people particularly have secret sin. There's a website called Post Secret. Okay, It's definitely PG-13 or above. So you can decide if you want to check it out. But on that website, people post their secrets. And most of them are silly, and you laugh. And But there's a secret on there. This is a real one that I read. Uh, when I get mad at my husband, I wear the jewelry on which I cheated with him with. People have dark secrets. 
Here's what secrets do. Secrets exhaust you, and secrets make you prideful. And you go, well, how's that possible? Secrets exhaust you because you have to spend a lot of time covering up your secrets. Right? You have to spend usually money eventually. Maybe not at the beginning, but you start spending money. But then you have to, if you're in relationship with anyone, you have to make sure that they don't know that you're spending that money. And your secrets will ask more time from you, and so you'll have to find more ways to have time to do them, but then also act like you weren't doing them. And then, of course, if, you're con if your conscience isn't completely seared, you'll have to live with your secrets, right? Isn't the language we use, we keep secrets? That's the language we use. It's like something I hold on. It takes a lot of energy to keep something. That's why when you come to Christ and you come out of your secret sin, even though you're like, I'm all in, you're more free. You're less exhausted. But they make you prideful. How does it make you prideful? All secret sin makes you prideful. Here's why. Because you think you're getting away with it. You're like, I'm smarter than my spouse. He doesn't know. Like, I'm smart enough. I've been doing this for years and no one knows. It's impossible to partake consistently in secret sin and not become prideful. So here's what happens. It says this. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all of the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughter, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now, this is hard for us because the family dies with him. Now, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, every person will die for their own sins and no one will be put to death for someone else's sin. So here's what we know. The family was complicit. See, you're not going to like this last part of the sermon either, but it's, it's um, see, we don't know what the family did. Did they steal it with them? Maybe. Did they help him bury it? Maybe. Or did they just know about it and look the other way? What are you tolerating in your home? Culture is what you teach and what you tolerate. Many parents are amazing at teaching the right things, and then they tolerate all of the wrong things. What happens here is the whole family is put to death. And then it says in verse 26, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Agur. Notice this is the second pile of stones in the book of Joshua. The first pile of stones was when something good happened. The second pile of stones was when something bad happened. God gives us both piles of stones. You need to decide if you want your life to be the pile of stones in Joshua 4 or the pile of stones in Joshua 7. Your life will either serve to be an example of what to do or your life will serve to be an example of what not to do. Now, what's interesting about all this is if we go back to the very beginning, because we see the families connected to him, and so they all die. And a lot of us don't like this idea that we're all connected. But if I could just bring us back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 as we close. 
Let me just remind you, at the very heart of the entire teaching of the Bible and the entire gospel is that we're all connected. Because somehow what Adam did in a garden thousands of years ago affects us today. Right? Adam's like, dude, all I want to do is I just, I'm just me and my wife here, and let me just do something God said I shouldn't do. And it's like, dude, thanks for the sinful nature, Adam. Because of this, Adam, you brought sin into the world, and one guy making a decision thousands of years ago has affected billions of people because God says somehow you were in Adam and are connected with Adam. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is the Bible also says that all of us, if we trust in Christ, can be in him. And in Romans 5, it says Jesus is a second Adam. Here's a, here's a big doctrine for you. It's called the doctrine of federal headship. It's that somehow we're all connected to two people, Adam and Christ. Adam by birth, Christ by new birth. And that somehow everything, when we trust in Christ, everything Jesus did, somehow we were in him and we did it with him. It's like I get to heaven and God says, that was so awesome when you fought Satan in the desert. Like, I don't remember. Yes, okay, yeah, I was in Christ. That was so unbelievable how you lived a sinless and perfect life and never did anything wrong. I'm like, I, I was in Christ, that's right. Somehow when Christ died on the cross, we were in Christ and he suffered the penalty and the punishment for us. And when you realize that, how could we have spiritual pride? How can anyone honestly stand at the foot of the cross and be spiritually prideful about anything? What I want to do, if you'll just close your eyes, is I want to give us an opportunity just to respond. There's a, there's a lot of different things. This text is, was pregnant with so many things. And so different things will hit people. I just want to close together and wherever you need to just confess something. So, so the first thing is, some of you just may need to confess spiritual pride. that you have been successful and it's made you prideful and you need to just remind yourself that you need Christ and you need community. For others of you, it might be a secret sin in your life. And you knew it. You knew it when I said secret sin at the beginning. You don't like that phrase. You knew what it was immediately and you just need to say, Lord, I'm going to confess and I'm going to forsake. For some of you, it's going to be, man, there is somebody. It might be my daughter. It might be my husband or wife. It might be a friend there's somebody and they are heading in the wrong direction. And I need to do what Joshua did. I need to go and I need to confront them and I need to have a hard conversation. Would you give us grace, Lord? Lord, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful that in John 8, when a woman was gonna be stoned, you said, he who has no sin cast the first stone and you forgave her, Lord. But we, we know that because of the cross, Lord, our sins can be forgiven and our paths can be cleansed. We thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.